I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. We are finished with our study in the book of James, which is the New Testament book of wisdom. We finished that uh, last week, but we wanted to kind of extend out the series reflecting on some principles of wisdom that we think come from, well, we know come from God's word, but which apply in particular to our times in our situation as a church family. And so we're going to be uh, jumping into the book of Ephesians and we'll pick up the reading today from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, which is an odd verse in the Greek language and your, your English Bibles have a hard time splitting it up. If you, By the way, here's a little trivia for you. If you look at the New American Standard, they actually split the verse differently than they do in the ESV or some of the other translations because they're trying to parse out where does this Greek sentence end and begin. Uh, Paul was notorious for writing run-on sentences and Ephesians was full of them. Okay, he needed to go back to grammar school and and like break up those sentences a little more simply. So we're going to be reading from the second part of Ephesians 5, 14, all the way through verse 21. And I invite you to read with me. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's holy, eternal, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. Now, if you and I think about the wisdom that God calls us to live in, and and remember, we defined uh, wisdom as living life God's way, right? There is probably no, no bigger question, at least, that most of us have to face ordinarily than to what, uh, than the question of what we will fill our days with. What do we do with the time that God has given us. As we have been reminded in some pretty dramatic fashions as a church family in the last few weeks, we don't decide the first day of our life and we don't decide the last day. God alone determines the number of our days. And He is sovereign over all of our days. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, all the days that were written for us We're done before we began. Isn't that amazing? God has this plan. So the question that you and I must face is this. What do we do with the time that God has given us? And in the passage that we just read, Paul is going to exhort us to understand our time. Then he's going to challenge us to redeem our time. 
is to talk about where we invest our time. And then in a little twist, he's going to talk about what we fill our time with. All right? So understand, redeem, invest, and fill. What do we need to know to understand the time that God has given us in? Uh, in Ephesians 5.15, Paul says this very carefully. He's speaking to Christians. Look carefully how you walk. What are you going to do with your days? Look carefully how you walk. Don't be unwise, but be wise. Make the best use of your time because the days you are living in are evil. Now, there's a sense in which we've all been living in evil days since the fall of Adam and Eve. The world has been broken since that time when we, as the human race, rebelled against God. And ever since then, all of us as human beings have been operating in hostility and rebellion to God apart from His grace. And then there's a recognition that at different times and periods and epochs of history, there are, there are seasons in the world history where situationally things are more evil than they are in other times. So for example, uh, if you're in Ukraine right now, this is a very evil time to be there because you are being oppressed by an aggressor nation which unjustly invaded you and is slaughtering hundreds and thousands of your fellow civilians with no cause. So you could say Ukrainians are living in an evil time. On a more micro level, we may go through various periods in our life where we are experiencing greater uh, access or greater response to all of God's graces in a normative sense. We, the job goes well. The marriage is cruising along well. Our children are doing well in school. Our employers aren't mad at us and we're doing good at, at work and we're getting promotions and, 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 we, and we actually get to take a vacation, you know, and things are going pretty well, right? And then there are bad days where we get phone calls and text messages that none of us want. And doctors come out with diagnoses and bosses call us in and we get fired and the bank calls the note on the mortgage. Those would be evil days, right? So we experience the reality of time in varying ways experiencing the abundance of God's common blessings and, and his extraordinary blessings to us. But there are also times when God, in his sovereign grace and goodness, allows evil things to happen in our life. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? How are you going to understand the time that God has given you. And Paul has told us, don't waste the days. Whether or not the days are evil. In fact, notice, he, whatever the Ephesians were going through was not a good season. And his response was, wasn't hunker down and wait until everything gets better. 
right? He said, right now, in the midst of your evil days, look carefully how you walk. Don't waste the time that God has given you. Don't do it. Don't waste the days that God has given you. Whether or not you think today is a good day or you're experiencing it as a good day, don't waste your days because they are limited. Scripture reminds us, the psalmist says, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet, their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and, and we fly away. And then he goes on, what's your response to that shortness of life? It's to cry out to God and say, so teach us, O God, to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. The author of Ecclesiastes is going to say this. He's going to say, your, your, your life and your mindset should be in the grave. What does he mean by that? He means if you and I wake up every day and realize that it might be our last, that might adjust how we talk to people. It might adjust what we invest our time in. It might adjust who uh, we spend time with and what we do. And God, as the sovereign creator, sets before each of us today and all of our days with various circumstances and tasks and people that he calls us to relate to. So you don't come across a situation where God is surprised. And God just shows up and says, I didn't know that was going to happen to Ken today. I, I reconfigured my plans. God is not surprised by our tech problems today. God is not surprised by any of the circumstances that we face. He sets before us these circumstances that we are in. He has tasks for us to do, and he has people that he wants us to minister to and relate to. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we read, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time and a ma- uh, for every matter for, and for every work. Time for every matter and every work. Now, Maggie read to us from the earlier part of Ecclesiastes 3 earlier, where we recognize these words, and many of you thought those were song, uh, lyrics from the birds, right? You know? Um, <laughs> There, you know, there's a time for everything, a matter, a time for every matter under heaven, right? There is this reality that God sets before us a time and a place and a people that he wants us to address. So that means God has determined the times in which we live and therefore must steward. Steward because there will be a day of accountability. The question is, Do you understand your time? Do you understand your circumstances? Do you understand the people that God has called you to be in relationship with? You know, when David was assembling his governance over the kingdom of Israel, once it was under his authority, each of the tribes brought forth specialists that had special skills. The men of Benjamin, for example, came forward and they were, they were uh, people who were experts in slingshot. You know, they could, they could like take down Goliaths all day long. But when Issachar brought their men forward to present, they brought wise men. Men who understood the times. Men who understood the situations that God was putting them in. 
And God's calling us to be that kind of wise people because there is a wise way to live the lives that God has ordained for you. Now, let me just say this. There is a counterpoint to this. If there is a wise way, there is also a, an unwise, or let's just be blunt, what does the Bible call it? Foolish. There is a foolish way to spend your life today, tomorrow, this week, this month. And so scripture would call us to recognize that there is a time and a way for us to live and act. So Ecclesiastes goes on to say, whoever keeps a command of God will know no evil thing and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Think about what Maggie read at the beginning of the service. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up. A time to build and a time to destroy. There's a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to grieve and there's a time to dance. Right? So recognizing that, we as believers are called to this recognition. I must understand my life, my relationships, my circumstances, and recognize there is a wise way that God wants me to live this day. So that means that we go to God recognizing that he guides our hearts into daily wisdom. And he does so particularly through two things that you may not have thought of, promise and longing. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Theo and I were talking about this verse a couple of weeks ago, and it's an interesting verse because it makes us this amazing promise that God makes everything beautiful in its time. Yesterday, during the service, we talked about the promise of Jesus speaking out over all creation that he is renewing and bringing to its fulfillment, and that is that he is making everything new right? This is an Old Testament version of that same promise that God is in the business of taking all of the brokenness of this earth, this recognition that God takes the broken pieces of our lives and he makes them beautiful in his time. Now there's an amazing promise. No matter what, how bad my day is, no matter what I'm going through, we can trust that God will make that beautiful in its time. And then he creates a longing in the human heart. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What is Solomon saying here? Koheleth, the preacher, what is he saying? He's saying this, you and I were not created for this world. We were created for an eternal relationship with an eternal God and you are in a temporary body in temporary situations until God renews all things and makes them into a new heaven and a new earth. Therefore, although there is the promise that God will make everything beautiful in its time, there is a recognition that will never come true in my life completely now. Period. You will never live your best life until you're with Jesus. 
until you're with Jesus. You will never live your best life now. It's not true. There's this longing for this place of eternity because you get the new car and quickly you notice it's not quite as gas efficient as you thought it would be. It's not quite as, as nice to drive as you thought it would be. You get the new house and you find out that it's not quite as perfect. You get the new job, you find out it's not quite as perfect as you thought. You get the new spouse and they're definitely not quite as perfect. You get the kids, they're not so perfect, Right? You're not living your best life now, folks. So recognizing that reality as believers, we live in a tension point where we trust that God is in the business of making everything beautiful and yet recognizing we also live in this not yetness where we are helping advance and bringing about the kingdom of God in this world, but recognizing only God will do that ultimately in his days. That means there will not be a perfect answer to your day. There will never be a perfect day. But you can rest in that day, know that God is making it into something beautiful. So if you understand your time, then you will redeem your time. You will buy back your time. You will ransom your time. That's what the word redeem means. And Ephesians 5.16, the ESV says, making the best use of the time. The word is redeeming. I don't know why they translate it, making the best use of, probably because that's what most of us would think of. But the word is Paul, that Paul commands is he says, I want you to be redeeming the time. I want you to be buying back the time that God has given you. Why does he mean that? Because God himself has redeemed time. He's bought it back from the brokenness of this world. If you go to Galatians chapter four, verses four through five, it says something fascinating. It says, in the fullness of time, thousands of years of human history, until right about AD zero. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, God intercepted human history by sending his son at exactly the right time. From eternity past, God had a moment that he knew where he would interrupt history and send his son to live the perfect life that you and I could not have lived, to die an atoning death, to pay for us to be brought back into right relationship with God, to reconcile us to God, and then to defeat sin and death. So we redeem the time because God has bought back human history. He's bought it back, so we redeem the time. We redeem the time also because we have been bought. We have been redeemed by God. Uh, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says this, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing what? Knowing that you were ransomed, and that can be the word redeemed, okay? You were ransomed 
from the feudal ways, the old life you had, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, you redeem today because Jesus has bought you. He bought you with his blood. He didn't just buy human history. He bought you. Men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Paul puts it a little more succinctly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Jesus died for all so that you could get a get-out-of-jail-free card and not go to hell and do whatever you want for the rest of your days while claiming faith in Jesus Christ. Did Paul say that? That's not what he said. He said he died for all so that those who live, that's all of us in this room right now, unless some of you stopped breathing for a second, might no longer live for themselves, but for who? But for him who died for them. Jesus did not die for you so that you could get a pass through his grace and not live for him. You do not get Jesus to be your savior without him being your Lord. He bought you so that you would live for him. You redeem the time because he has bought you and therefore he has bought your days, your circumstances, your workplaces, your relationships, the tasks that he has for you. He's bought them all. You've never woken up since the day you profess faith in Jesus Christ where he has not bought that day. Does that make sense? You redeem the time because you're a renewed creation. This is not something external. This is not some burden that God has placed on you. When you came into a relationship with Jesus Christ by his grace, he woke you up from spiritual slumber and made you into a new creation. That's why I think Ephesians 5.14 is tied to the, the next part of the passage and not the preceding part. It fits the language. It says, therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's speaking to you and me. Wake up, everybody. Jesus has shown his light on you and you are now a child of the king. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You've been gifted with a new life. That means you wake up every day and it's a new beginning. Every day is a mulligan. <laughs> no matter how bad yesterday was, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. The, behold, the new has come. Peter would put it this way. He says, there was an old you and now there's a new you and they should be radically different. Peter says that you are to no longer live for the rest of our time in the flesh for human passions, but for what? For the will of God. You and I wake up tomorrow morning for the will of God, not for your own human passions. He says, you had enough time in the past for doing all the things that the pagans do. They spend their time in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. He says, you had enough time for that, okay? That time has passed. Now you got time for a future. And brothers and sisters, you redeem the time because you've been given each day a new purpose, a new kingdom 
purpose. You know, we love to quote Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, by, by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God so that no one has any right to boast, right? It's not of human works, it's all of God's grace. But Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are his workmanship, what? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's this afternoon. That's tomorrow. That's next week. That's next month. And every day, as long as you draw breath. There are works that God has prepared for you. You and I redeem the time because we've been given these new tasks and we've been given new relationships. New relationships. Have you ever thought that there's never a person that crosses your path that Jesus did not intend you to love? Two great commandments, he said. Love God. Love others. There is not a single person that intercepts your life that God does not intend you to love. That means the grocery store clerk, the waitress at the restaurant. It means the person who's unkind to you at work. It means the neighbor who yells at you. It means the old friend that ignored you and hurt you. It means the spouse that you're arguing with. It means the teacher that you don't like. There's never been a person whose life you intercepted since you came to Jesus that he did not intend for you to love. Paul, interestingly, uses this phrase, redeeming your time in another place, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of, and that's the word redeeming again. So one, you know, we have to use four words in English to, we could make it really short, but okay. Making the best use of, or redeeming the time in your orientation to people. Let your speech always be gracious. That does not mean let your speech always be nice. That's not what he said. Being kind is good. Be grace-giving with what you do, with what you speak. Give grace to people, undeserved favor in your speech. Let your speech be seasoned with salt so that you know how to answer each person. Telling them the good news and living out the good news and speaking good news over them. All right, so if we understand the time, then we will redeem the time and then Paul's going to give us some examples of how we can invest our time. And he's going to tell us three things. It's amazing. Paul breaks it down so simply for us. Three things that he says you can invest your time in. He says, number one is this. Understand what the will of the Lord is. That's what you can do with your time. Know and do God's will. Now that seems kind of simple, right? Know it and do God's will. Just wake up tomorrow morning, know and do God's will. <laughs> okay. You know what gets so confusing for you and me? We think we're supposed to know God's will for five years from now. 
or five days from now. But if you woke up every day and just said, I'm just going to do whatever Jesus brings my way for the glory of God in his strength with the best efforts that I got, our lives might be a whole lot simpler. I understand we need to do some planning. Scripture commends planning and seeking counsel. There's, I don't mean to diminish that, but I think we complicate things because the truth is that oftentimes what we call prayer requests are simple attempts to control the future. To control outcomes that we don't have. So how do you know God's will? You soak in God's word to know God's will, right? You want to know God's will? Here it is. He spoke it. Don't get more complicated than that. I know it says that I should love my wife, pastor. Yes, do that. But no. No buts. Just do it. Right? It's not complicated. I know it said not to revile, pastor. No, just no, don't say the word but. Oh, here it came. You said the word but. Folks, we complicate things when we fail to soak our lives in God's word to know his will. I love how Romans 12, 2 is phrased in uh, the Christian standard Bible. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You want to know God's will? Get into his word, which will transform your mind and help you discern that. Go to God who is alive and has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell you and ask him to reveal his will to you. Have you asked God what his will for you is today? Yes, I, I don't know. We want to know tomorrow and the next week and so on. But ask God to reveal his will to you. Colossians 1, 9 through 10 uh, tells us something really, really impressive here. If I can get it up. There we go. And so from the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You want to know how to pray for your pastor? Pray that. Pray that. You want to know how to pray for each other? Pray that. Hey, God, let every person in Redeemer Baptist Church be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they can walk in a manner worthy of you, be fully pleasing to you, bear fruit in every good work, and increase in their knowledge of you. That's a great way to pray for somebody. Asking God, pray that for yourself. That God would fill you with the knowledge of his will. Can I tell you that I think sometimes we don't ask God for his will because we're scared of what he's going to say and we think he might not be quite what we, our will is. So it's easier to do our will and then say, God, why didn't you make it work the way I wanted it to work? Does that make sense? Never, never, none of us. I've never done that, but some of you might have, right? No, I've only done it, I don't know, a thousand times. So once we've soaked in God's word, we've asked him, here's the other thing, do that which you know. Sometimes we overcomplicate our lives because we're unwilling to do the very things that we know we ought to do. God, I don't know what I should do five months from now. And Jesus is like, what I want you to do right now today is just go love this person. 
God, I don't know what's gonna happen five years from now. You don't need to know. I got five years from now. You go do what I told you to do today. Today, do what you know. Micah chapter six, verse eight, so simple, right? I love this. Micah says this, he's told you everybody what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here it is. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. We make things so complicated because we're trying to get into the nitty gritty details of life without having to trust God. And we miss the big things. By the way, ministers are not immune from that. Go hang out on Christian minister Twitter. I promise you, some of my brothers have forgotten on particular days that they are there to do kindness and justice. And that they're to walk in humility. Not that that's ever been me. So, because of course it has been. James puts it negatively, <laughs> You might remember this from our study. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Folks, if you're busy not doing the things that Jesus has told you to do because you're busy trying to find out some plan that he doesn't want you yet to know, that's a problem. Right? Paul's second thing, he says, invest your time this way is be with God's people. Be with God's people. You are not intended to live your Christian life in a solitary fashion. In this particular passage, the way he puts it this way is he says, okay, you understand the will of the Lord, get busy with your time. And then he says, what? What's the very first thing he says? Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Yes, that does mean overtly that we are called to worship together but it means so much more because notice it's not singing to God. It's addressing one another. Did you know worship always has aspects that are vertical to God and horizontal to each other? We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Some of you know what this is like. We, we have a sister in Christ uh, who was a member of our church, who's not great health um, now, but you, many of you have experienced this. You get a phone call from Reva, and what does she do? She starts singing to you, right? It's kind of disconcerting a little bit at first, and then she's singing a hymn to you. Hey, she's taking it literally, folks. A lot of us would be a lot better off, perhaps, if we did that addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are to be in the business of exhorting and encouraging one another 
because that's part of our calling. So the author of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're to be in the business of being with one another and encouraging one another because we are always in the business of discipling one another into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a really bad way to interpret Ephesians 5.21 that is the tail end of this before Paul begins to address the family, and it is to argue about who's in charge of somebody else. Um, and, and let me just point out that when Paul says we're to be in the business of submitting, it is a mutual reality to one another, and there is a purpose behind it. It is to glorify God. And it always has to do with the reality that we are shaping one another into the image of Jesus. We need brothers and sisters to come along and say, hey, that wasn't so kind. That wasn't very encouraging what came out of your mouth. That wasn't very loving the way you acted. We need brothers and sisters who encourage us and say, you did great, I'm so impressed with what God's doing in your life. And that's what submission is about. We know this, we know this because Paul has already cast his vision of discipleship in the prior chapter. So never take one verse out of its context and make it an argument about who's in charge. The answer in the church is every Holy Spirit-filled believer should be submitting to every other Holy Spirit-filled believer because we're all in the business of discipling one another into the image of Jesus. And we know this because Paul said in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, speaking the truth in love, all of us are to be in the business of what? Growing up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. In other words, day by day, we're shaping each other to look more like Jesus. Are you growing up to look more like Jesus? That's the goal of the church from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The community of love that's built around Jesus Christ is not arguing about who is in charge. It is in the business of shaping one another into the image of Jesus. And it recognizes that all of us have a role in that. Right? Okay, so we're know and do God's will. Be with each other. Third thing that Paul points out is worship, right? It was inherent in what we just talked about. Worship God at all times, in all places, and in all ways. He makes it more explicit when he says, giving thanks some days when everything goes my way, and I'm really happy. No. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's been very hard for me to obey the last two weeks. Not some days. On your worst days. I think of 
Corey Tinboom's sister, Betsy, being in the concentration camp and thanking God for the flies and the lice that infested their quarters. How Corey was outraged with her sister as they're imprisoned in this Nazi death camp. What do you mean, thank God for the lice and all the pests and everything? Giving thanks always and for everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. She said it was only later that she realized and found out the reason the women weren't being systemically raped in their barracks was because of the lice. Giving thanks always and in everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship God, brothers and sisters, every day at all times, in all places, in all ways, because that's what we were created and recreated for. So, we understand the time, we redeem the time, we invest the time, and now let's talk about filling the time. And what do I mean by filling your time? If I said to you, fill your time, you guys would pull out your calendars and go, you don't understand, I'm, I'm already quite busy. I got a lot of things to do. I got chores to do around the house. I got doctor's appointments. I got people I got to meet with. I got appointments. I got so many tasks. I just can't fill my time already. And now you're telling me to fill my time more. No, not that way. But Paul's way. Ephesians 5.18 says this. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Southern Baptist, by the way, we love the first part of this verse, and we don't like the second part. We're scared to death that we might turn all charismatic <laughs> while avoiding wine. Which, by the way, just says don't get drunk with wine. Doesn't say don't enjoy a really good glass of Tao, okay? Doesn't say that. We miss the emphasis in the passage because the emphasis is not on the don't, but on the do. And the do is be filled with something. Paul's saying, as believers, don't fill your life up with things that don't matter and let them control you. But do fill up your life with what? The Holy Spirit of God. So here's what I'm going to say to you. When it comes to your calendar and your days and everything else, fill your time with the Holy Spirit. Because all of us who have entrusted ourselves to the grace of Jesus are indwelt by the Spirit, by God's grace. And Paul has already made that clear. Ephesians 1:13. He says this, "You also when you heard the word of truth, you heard the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation, and you believed it, what happened to you? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit." Of God. Now, I know there's a big theological debate. Does that mean everybody's indwelt at the same time and everything else? And the short answer is yes. Yes, it does. Okay? I could debate you all day long theologically on that, but that we're not going to argue that point. It means that all of us as believers are called to recognize that when we heard the gospel and we believe the gospel, that same gospel news that made us into new creations meant that the Holy Spirit was outpoured into us 
We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, but Paul is also calling us to recognize there are times and days and ways where we are living not under the power of the Holy Spirit, but under the old flesh. And we need to cry out for the Holy Spirit to fill us anew and afresh with power that our lives may be transformed. We need to stop grieving the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to let the Holy Spirit have full reign in our lives and in our calendars because the Spirit is in the business of changing us into the image of Jesus. That's why... The fruit of the Spirit is not being angry all the time. It's not hate. It is not impatience or harsh words or laziness or infidelity or giving ourselves over to whatever we feel like. No. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So does your calendar, your time, your days, your circumstances look like that? What'd you do with your day? Well, I loved people. What'd you do with your, the last hour? I was joyful in the Lord. What'd you do in that tough situation at work? I was patient. Not because I wanted to be, but because the Holy Spirit was changing me. When that person was really unkind to you, what'd you do? I was kind back to them. Not because I have it in me, but because the Holy Spirit was changing me. What'd you do when you were tempted in the flesh? Well, you know, it's weird. Before I probably would have given in, but now I had the self-control not to, and I stayed faithful. Because the Holy Spirit's in the business of making me into the image of Jesus Christ. So we fill our time and our days and our circumstances with the Holy Spirit. And the wonderful promise of God is this. The Spirit strengthens us to know, believe in, and live out of God's love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. He will. So we're going to close with this passage from Ephesians 3, 14. Paul prays this prayer. It's a great other prayer for us to pray for one another. He said, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, he wants you to be strong in your inmost being, okay? So that Christ can dwell in your hearts through faith. Right? And that means you'll be able to apprehend or understand or live out of the reality of God's love. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God.
What if somebody looked at your life and they said all their days were filled with the fullness of God's love? Wouldn't that be an amazing testimony? Wouldn't that be redeeming the time? That would be God's grace to us. So let's ask for it. Let's ask for it right now. Oh, Father God, grant that we would, in humility, experience what we have just talked about. That you would come and indwell us and strengthen us from the inmost being. That we would know the height, the depth, the breadth, and length of the love that you have shown for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who died for us, who was raised for us, that we might be brought into an eternal relationship with you. We want our lives to be overflowing cups that pour forth your grace and love into this world. Grant that we would invest our time and our days with all that you set before us that you may be worshiped and glorified, that our words, our fellowship, our very presence would point beyond ourselves to your son Jesus in whose name we pray and ask for all these blessings. Amen.